trying to think about these crime stories as reflective of theories about sexuality that had been transforming from a more kind of what um, biological based idea of homosexuality as a problem and a almost like an inheritance within the family, right? Some of these older 19th century ideas that were still present in the, po uh, in the post-World War I era um, to a kind of minority model of, of the Cold War. And as the homophile groups began to articulate an idea of homosexuality as a minority um, uh, citizenship. So I wanted to think about change over time uh, how these crime stories give us windows into the different ideas about um, queer sexuality throughout these, um, pretty much the, the center of the 21st century. Hi, everyone. Welcome back again to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Today, I think the title of our organization is very fitting because I'm actually joined with True Crime and Academia's Mary DePippi, who you all know. Hi, Mary. Hello. And I'm going to introduce our featured guest, the writer of Indecent Advances, A Hidden History of True Crime and Prejudice Before Stonewall. Maybe I should have said true crime and prejudice to get that pride and prejudice <laughs> illusion in there. Okay. Um, but Dr. James Polchin, who um, said he, I can call him Mr. Polchin with his permission. <laughs> he is a clinical professor at New York University. He usually lives in New York City, except today he's coming from P-Town. Um, and he's taught at the Princeton Writing Program, the Parsons School of Design, the New School for Public Engagement, and the Creative Nonfiction Foundation. So without further ado, welcome, Mr. Polchin. Right. Thank you. Great uh, to be here. So I think first, just as a starting point, um, you know, because you have taught creative writing and you've taught so many different, it seems, genres of literature, you know, um, what were you trained as with your PhD? <laughs> what, yes, what, what does one do? So um, I was, uh, I have a PhD in American studies. Um, and so that's, as people know, right? Um, or maybe they don't know. It's very interdisciplinary. It's very um, cross um, fields as well as um, approaches. And so that's where my training was. And I focused mostly on um, 20th century American um, uh, history and culture with a focus on, on queer experience. Um, but at the same time, I also um, have, have been teaching writing for a long time because I, I come out of um, more of an English um, uh, studies background. And so I, I'm really trying to, think about the intersections there about theory and history with storytelling, right? And how those two um, can merge um, in useful ways, right? Um, not to put down any um, academic books that are heavily theor theoretical in their approach to queer experience, but I also think it's really important to have books that um, people outside the university are gonna pick up and read. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm really glad you lay that out because Mary and I have had a lot of these conversations, mm. um, like her coming from creative writing, me mm. coming from this academic type of writing that why we love co-hosting and bringing you on, James, <laughs> is that, okay, now I'm switching to James, but uh, <laughs> it's, Perfectly fine. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> we're very familiar now with each other, um, is because that's, I think that's why we really love these creative nonfiction books, because it's like a blend of biography. We experienced this with the Maryland and Manhattan book, mm. Um, mm. how you have to merge these genres together and, you know, especially with a book like Indecent Advances, I could see how it could come out of a more academic vein of scholarship, but 
to me, it wouldn't resonate the same for the general public. So like, you know, I know Mary was going to ask a question, but sorry, Mary, it just is something I really wanted to bring up right away is like, how concerned were you? It sounds like you were thinking about making that bridge from being scholarly to speaking more to the public. Right, right. Um, Precisely. Yeah, I, I knew the book that I could write, and I didn't want to write that book. I wanted to write a book that was more narrative focused. And so, as you both know, like, so each chapter really focuses on a on a particular case. And I tried to, um, the, the real goal in writing and focusing on the story here was to give you the experience of what it was like to encounter the newspaper at that time. So really taking you through the, the week by week stories or how, however long the story was in the headlines. And, and so um, kind of give that sense that you as a reader are, are getting an understanding of how um, folks back then in the 30s or 40s or whenever would have experienced that story, right? And all the sort of mysteries or uncertainties around it. Um, so that was a challenge, but it was a good challenge. And, and to your point, I, yes, I think that we wanna think about different audiences when we write about um, queer experience and when we write about queer history and think about different um, people who we wanna reach. Um, and, and for me, of course, crime is such a very popular thing uh, for people to, to, to engage with, right? And so it, it already had a subject matter that lent itself to a, to a larger audience too. I also really like how you point out the role of the media Mm. in this. And I do like that approach of here. This is what, like, if you were during alive during this time, this is what the news headlines would state for these cases. And I think that people have this misconception that the media today is the only type of media that could break, you know, not necessarily brainwash people, but present a narrative that isn't always the truth. Mm. I think people think that more as a present day problem and not a problem that's just been consistent with media since its birth. And I like that this book points that out. Right. It was it was fascinating to me as I was researching and also frustrating. Right. Um, And I'm sure both of you have this experience where you're you're to the point where people's names were different or um, addresses were different, like factual information that you would think, oh, the press is on this, but it was incredibly different or um, uh, descriptions about the crime itself would vary depending on the newspaper, right? And so, yeah, I think that there's, that's one thread of this book where, you know, the media has always been a contentious site in terms of how we understand the truth of the news of the day, um, depending on which newspaper you bought that day, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I really like that process of, especially, you know, as I'm like looking back at your chapter titles, cause I wanted the audience to hear one. Cause I, they are so creatively done James, but like you have your intro, which I'm we're, I know we're going to talk about. Cause that's where you lay out the invention of homosexuality as a term and all that, but skipping forward just to read one of the titles. When the Men Came Home is chapter one, Sailors, Scandals, and Mysteries in the 1920s. And I just really love how you take us through the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, post-World War II, and we eventually get up to the 60s into Stonewall, like right before Stonewall. Um, So I was curious, you know, like why was it so important, you think, to take us through the decades? Mm. Like, and organize the chapters that way. Right. Um, you know, I played around with um, the structure uh, a lot. Um, in 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 the field of history, oftentimes they they we want to kind of unsettle a timeline approach um, mm-hmm. to telling history. Right. That um, that sequencing maybe isn't the best way to tell a certain history. And so I played around with a lot of um, approaches, and just always came back to the kinds of cultural transformations that were happening um, through this period from World War I to the years before Stonewall, right? And so much transformation was going on from 
the kinds of the prohibition of the 20s, um, the depression, World War One, uh, sorry, World War Two, and then of course post-war, Cold War, um, and the, the 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 Red Scare, the Lavender Scare, and all. So trying to sort of think about these crime stories within the historical context was really important for me. Trying to think about these crime stories as reflective of theories about sexuality that had been transforming from a more kind of what um, biological based idea of homosexuality as a problem and a almost like an inheritance within the family, right? Some of these older 19th century ideas that were still present in the, po uh, in the post World War I era um, to a kind of minority model of, of the Cold War. And as the homophile groups began to articulate an idea of homosexuality as a minority um, uh, citizenship. So I wanted to think about change over time, uh, how these crime stories give us windows into the different ideas about um, queer sexuality throughout these, um, pretty much the, the center of the 21st century. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And where did, you know, where did James find this inspiration, like what in like your own life or what in your research, like what led you down this path in the first place? Like, okay, I have to write a nonfiction book that outlines mostly, you know, queer male true crime cases. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, people, people often ask me that when I tell them what, you know, book I wrote, they're like, oh, um, I'm, yes, I wrote a book about the murders of and assaults of queer men, you know, in the decades before Stonewall. Um, so I was doing research at Yale, um, uh, the Yale archives, into the scrapbooks of Carl Van Vechten, right? And Carl Van Vechten was this um, writer, uh, photographer uh, in Harlem, in the, during the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, so from the early 20th century, um, I think he died around 1960, if I remember, 64. Um, and he was such a force, right? He was, he was responsible for um, getting a number of Harlem Renaissance writers published by mainstream uh, publishers, right? Um, he would take groups of mostly white Greenwich Village Bohemians on tours of Harlem in the 20s. And he would bring Harlem um, performers and musicians down to the salons of Greenwich Village, much to the uh, dismay of some of the Bohemians of Greenwich Village, right? And so he was really interested in crossing different kinds of cultural borders, right? Um, around race, around gender. He was married twice in his life, he, um, but yet he had a whole um, coterie of, of men who he had sex with and relationships with. Um, and so he kept these scrapbooks. Um, he was a collector of many things, all kinds of um, ephemera as well as books and music, but he kept these scrapbooks um, of queer life through those decades from about the 20s to through, this, through the 50s, um, up until almost till the time that he died. And they were filled with um, flyers from drag balls, they were filled with articles um, from uh, must have been sort of rag newspapers of some sort about these drag balls. Um, there were ads for some of the queer novels of the 30s and 40s. Um, and mixed into these scrapbooks were these little articles, those crime articles. Um, and he had underlined or someone had underlined because some of these articles were sent to him. He would underline where say the victim and the murderer met at the bar, right? Or he would underline certain key details of articles that were clearly coded queer, but weren't explicitly queer, right? And so this got me thinking <laughs> this, like I knew about the drag balls. I knew about um, the, the cultural life through the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, you know, from books like Gay New York and other kinds of histories that have come about, right? That really document the cultural community life 
um, of queer experience in those decades, um, all of the kind of richness of that life, despite the prejudices and discriminations. But here was Carl Van Vechten documenting with this, these materials, also the crime stories, right? And so I didn't know that, I didn't know that thread of the history. And so it got me pursuing and really exploring, like, what are these crime stories? Clearly they were important for him. Clearly they were part of the collage of um, scrapbooking that he did from all this material. An interesting, interesting thing about the scrapbooks, he collected them all and donated them to Yale um, with the caveat that they couldn't be open for 30 years after he died. Wow. And wow. so they were opened, you know, in the mid 1990s. And that was the first real understanding of what he had kind of collected there and, mm -hmm. and really gave a, a, a personal but also cultural window into into those decades that were great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thank you wow. for laying that out. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. definitely. Yes. Now, so, yeah. were you no, good, always no. in, like, did you have an interest in true crime before you started this work? Or was this kind of just something where you saw this and you were like, oh, my gosh, people need to know about this? <laughs> right. No, I, right. Um, that question is always kind of a Rorschach test. Like, <laughs> how long have you been interested in true, in true crime? Um, it's true. I've always been interested in mystery. And and whether fiction or, or or real life, right? As a kid, I don't know if you we. I used to have these little books that were, um, I think they were called one minute mysteries, and they were just one page stories with a mystery that you had to solve, and then in the back they had the solution. But it was like this, you know, you could just read them for hours and try to figure them out. Um, so I've always been interested in mysteries and um, and been thinking about. Um, crime in that context like what you know as i get older it's like what draws us to mysteries why is crime um which became such a fascinating subject um in the mid-19th century at the very moment where um we're 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 industrializing we're we're modernizing in ways um unprecedented ways and crime becomes so important, right? Um, and we tend to think of crime as just, you know, that side thing, the the tabloids and so forth and so on. But it's such a, it's so intertwined in, in you know, the last two centuries of of experience, um, particularly North American and Europe. So mm -hmm. that you know, from like the little kids sort of interested in mystery, then comes this bigger interest, the continuing interest in it. And what does it mean culturally to, to, to have these stories? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think this is your first like book for a mainstream publisher. Is that correct, James? That's correct. This is my first book. <laughs> Just first book. Mm, okay. Congratulations. Okay. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is an incredible first book. Mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming you're working on something right now. <laughs> is that true? I am. I am. It's another. Um, it's another crime um, story, but it's just one. one. <laughs> true crime. Yes, true crime. <laughs> um, but it's uh, one case. One very big, very complicated case from 1922 mm. um, that I came across in this research. But um, because it was so big and it it had. Uh, many um, parts to it that I couldn't research at the time, I put it on the side. And so happily, I've come back to it and, um, and, and Counterpoint, the publisher of Indecent Advances, um, loved it, loved the proposal. So um, they'll be publishing it um, probably, I think in 2024. Oh, oh wow. wonderful. Okay. So yeah. this will not be the last time with James Polchin. Uh, <laughs> can you give us a hint as to the case? Right. So um, it's a case of um, a young man about 19 who was murdered and left on the side of the road in Westchester County, not far from White Plains um, in 1922. And that's where um, he was found. Um, and a few days after he was found and identified, um, uh, 
a man came forward um, who was the wealthy son of one of the largest baking companies in the US. Um, they, um, they made their fortune um, industrializing bread making. Um, mm. uh, one of their mottos um, was, uh, um, our bread is untouched by human hands because they had these machine made bread, not something we might you know, find valuable today, but you know, <laughs> something that was um, at the time really important. And so um, it plays out uh, over 16 months where this, um, uh, uh, where the killer claims that he was in a blackmail scheme which the victim was um, blackmailing him. The, what that blackmail was about is the question at hand. Mm. Um, ah, okay. And so it feeds into, again, a lot of um, theories around sexuality, a lot of innuendo. There's a lot of um, questions about the dynamics of, of these two men and what had brought them together in that. So, um, but it was a long case. Um, it, it brings in questions of class, questions of, of race and sexuality that um, played out. And no one has written about this case um, as such. So that's always good too. <laughs> cool. That's gonna okay. be exciting. I can't wait to get my hands on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll Definitely. send you a copy. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yes, I can't please. wait. Well, and you really, in Indecent Advances, I think something that, I wasn't expecting was the scope and how many cases you bring to bear for your evidence of um, this hidden history of queer male life. And a myth that you really burst that I was so excited and why I'm using James's work in my dissertation is this whole, like the late 19th century idea that turned me onto the 19th century, literally, like not literally, but figuratively <laughs> turned me on with this queer male work um, is how the literature and the history, you know, work together. Like whether it's Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray mm -hmm. speaks to sexu sexuality and the sexology field because he knew so many of those sexologists who you mentioned in your intro, like John Addington Simmons or Havelock Ellis or Edward Carpenter. Um, so like, why did you, why did you turn and know, okay, I need to begin with just establishing to my readers that mm. this is how homosexuality was invented, was developed as just a concept in literature? Right. Um, that's a good question. The, you know, it's always, it, it, whenever you write a history, it's always about like, where did you, where do you begin it? How do you contextualize it? What's the, um, wh what's the origins of whatever phenomenon you're looking at, right? And um, for me, um, it is that 19th century moment where we get those theories of homosexuality. We get these new articulations of, uh, sexuality as an, an identity, as a quality, as um, uh, something that is of interest to the medical profession to look at and to mark someone in this way. So not simply say a practice, right? Um, as sodomy was understood as a practice that you know people could engage in as a sin, but wasn't didn't determine who you were around a sense of identity or a sense of quality of, of character or something of that nature. So um, th those theories that come up in the late 19th centuries were fascinating, continue to be fascinating to me, um, particularly now when we're trying to maybe rethink those categories that we have lived with for, for a number of decades. Um, uh, but at the same time, the 19th century also gave us, right, um, criminology and, you know, of course, um, homosexuals were understood as criminals at that moment. So that was a criminal type. Um, and those kinds of theories around crimi criminals and criminal behavior, what causes criminality um, uh, are emerging at the same moment uh, where we're developing these theories of sexuality. So, so the intersection seemed really interesting and, 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 and I wanted to kind of start there and think about how 
they continue to play out in the decades of the early 20th century, right? And particularly so around um, the ways in which uh, criminology initially, right, were, was looking at how um, immoral behaviors, criminal behaviors could, uh, were, were biological, right? As I mentioned before, like there was a, this, those theories in which you're born as a criminal, you're born in these ways, right? Um, and of course, by the 1930s uh, and the rise of psychology as a tool to look at um, what you might say, um, a range of social deviances and how psychology rather than um, criminology um, can be useful um, to address these problems, right? And so, and that's where you start seeing the shift to not thinking about uh, homosexuals as people who were born in this way, at least in the, in the social science realm, but rather um, that they were formed this way, drawing on um, Freudian psychology and other theories at the time. And, and so you see more of that, particularly after World War, uh, World War II, where you really, and I, I talk about that in the book, you really see this um, dominance of, of psychology and what, what made you a homosexual. And if you were made a homosexual, then we can unmake you. Um, as well, right? And so we st we're still living with that thinking, right? We're still living with that conversion therapy and that's still that thinking that you can be unmade um, in these ways. So the 19th century does, there is that moment where I think where different kinds of theories come out from, from medicine and from crime to deal with um, uh, new realities, perhaps new realities of, of uh, urbanizing, um, world that are trying to categorize certain kinds of sexual deviancies, certain kinds of social deviancies. So it's a great sort of frame for me with this, with this book and this subject. Mm -hmm. Now I know I'm backtracking a little bit. So you talked about how you were at the archives at Yale doing mm -hmm. research. How else did you go about researching this book? Right. Yes. Um, I'm always curious about the research process. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I found those uh, those clippings in the in the Van Mechten scrapbooks, and they, um, as 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 much of a collector scrap, um, Van Mechten was, he was a horrible um, archivist. So none of these articles had any um, date or. Um, publication or anything on them. So they could be anywhere between 1925 and 1960, you know, so like go find them. And so it was difficult and I have to, I'll reveal a bit about my age as well as how long the book was in research. Um, I encountered Van Vechten scrapbooks at a time when we didn't have newspaper databases online. Mm -hmm. So the research was very limited in terms of going to the New York Times index and trying to research, say, the killer's name or the victim's name or trying to research a crime or something of that nature. Um, as we know, um, the New York Times index or Chicago Tribune or any of the major newspapers did not index homosexuality in this period, right? And so as a researcher, historian, there are real limitations of what you can find. Um, and so I did find some, um, and I did, uh, this was, um, this project was the dissertation many, many um, years ago. And so I was able to, to write some of it, but in a different context. Mm. I put it all aside. And then um, a few years ago, I came back to it with these databases right now, um, all these, um, wonderful folks who have been digitalizing newspapers, not just major urban city newspapers, but regional newspapers as well. So newspapers.com, you know, has a range of newspapers that are small town as well as um, the New York Times and that. And I just started putting in names of some of these um, victims that I knew about. And I started seeing newspaper articles from across the country about the crime. Mm. And then I got really excited and I thought oh what if I just started researching you know sailor found murder in hotel and 
playing around with different keyword searches. And that just opened up all of these articles that I had no idea existed um, and could not have found them any other way than through these kinds of digital databases that allow you to do keyword searches. Um, I was also able to find how one crime, say in New York City, would then be reported in Peoria and Idaho newspapers. And then I started thinking, well, why do they care about someone found dead in a hotel in, in New York City? And you know, sort of start thinking about the ways that these stories circulated through the AP wire service and what that meant and how that also reflected um, some of the homophobia, some of the um, discriminations that were um, emerging in this in this period, particularly after World War II, right? And so you, again, it's like, why, why are these stories important for the newspapers, small town Midwest, if only to indicate some kinds of um, deviancies th that are of danger to us as a nation, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so the research was someone who loves mysteries. The, the research was so much fun to do because you're just like trying to track cases in really, um, in, in really difficult, um, uh, processes, trying to find some of the stories were really small. They didn't have big headlines, but they had enough that I could begin to piece together. Many of the stories were coded because the journalist and editorial practices of the time didn't allow for an explicit um, uh, description of why the two men were together. They often coded it. They, you know, and, and again, the scrapbooks were useful because clearly men at the time or others at the time would read those articles and understand that subtext, right? Whereas we today may not. Um, but based on where they met or certain features that they hint at um, in the encounter, right, then we begin to read in between the lines. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's another thing I found really interesting with reading the headlines and how you kind of explain how like these hidden subtexts and you kind of just, as the book keeps going, you pick it out for yourself and you're like, oh, I see this. <laughs> I've got the pattern now. I, I see what they're doing. <laughs> see how they're trying to hide this. That's great. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that is something that happens. Um, you start seeing the, the, the clues in the articles themselves and you say, oh, wait, this is not just an innocent encounter. This was motivated for a certain reason. Mm -hmm. and, and you start seeing that. And, and then of course, I have a whole file on my computer of articles that I didn't have enough information on, right? So you also start seeing more and more into them and you think, oh, wait, no, I need to, um, the, there's, there's a point where I need to, like, if I can't really confirm it, I'm not going to, I'm not going to use it, but, mm -hmm. but you start seeing it mm -hmm. in a lot of articles. Yeah. 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 And I think I just really love what you've discussed about your process and how, because of the research field and like not having that technological advancement of like having homosexuality or having other terms that identify queer men, um, that sometimes you have to return to a project and it's not yet time because you just can't reveal all the stories. And, you know, but it's also something that speaks really, I think what first drew me to your book really was, um, I love your methodology because with my work, I'm really interested in how Greek literature is used by 19th century male mm. authors to speak to queer desire. And it's a form of coding mm. and like, okay, well, if we open that can of worms, you're going to reveal a lot of queer desire. It's not just right. That identity. And I think, especially for our current um, audience for the public, mm. they're so used to LGBTQ terminology that just didn't exist mm. because like you're saying, it develops as a field, just like criminology, just like mm. race at the same time develops as a field with language. So um, yeah, there's so many questions I could ask, but I think my first is just, you know, not only do you open and 
fling the door back on queer men who were involved in crimes, um, which we can see in newspapers. But right, because they're in the newspapers, how many stories aren't in the newspapers about queer men who are having dalliances and love affairs and living very exciting lives and it doesn't involve in a murder, right? It doesn't end in a murder. Like that's a small segment, right? And I wish we had all of those stories before photography, but we just don't have them recorded. But like, how did that, how did you process that? Like when were you thinking of that? Like what other stories might be out there? Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Right. All the time, all the time in this. Right. Because, of course, I am, you know, the stories I've gathered here are are in the news because of that tragic ending. Right. And um, I start in the intro, actually, with a with a small article about a, a man who was murdered in a hotel in midtown Manhattan who had come into town um, from New Jersey. Um, I think it was Summit. I think he lived. Um, mm-hmm. With his wife, he was uh, 60, late 60s, um, come in to buy theater tickets for their anniversary, right? And at some point um, he uh, went uh, to this hotel room with uh, a man dressed in a sailor's uniform um, and was robbed and, and, and murdered in the, in the hotel room. And, and of course, I, you know, that case in particular, I think, well, that's, I'm almost 100% sure that's not the first time he did that. It's not mm-hmm. the first time he went into the into New York City and did this, right? And you know, he worked for the post office in in New Jersey and you know, he had a um by all accounts a fairly, you know, successful and and happy middle-class life there. Um and so I definitely was thinking about um these the 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 stories that we don't um like as you said, we don't have about the ways in which um, these men's lives, right, um, were lived, and and for many of these cases, um, some are clearly um, marked that the victims lived what we would call um, a queer life um, in the '30s or '40s, right? They, um, from the information that the article gives us, many of the men that I write about and the stories that I write about um, are married and have kids and have, uh, you know, live what we would call fairly straight life um, for the most part and probably had these dalliances on occasion or or when they travel to the city um, away from family and familiar um, uh, friends as such. Um, And so that also was interesting to me in terms of uh, these were men who were kind of on the margins of the marginal queer world at the time. They probably didn't hang out at the cabarets that much or um, some of the world of, of queer community that we're, we know from books like, again, um, Gay New York and When Brooklyn Was Queer and other, other kinds of um, histories. And these are men who were marginal even to that world. And so mm-hmm. that's also an interesting component here for me um, you know, what happens when you criminalize homosexuality is that you're not just targeting um, queer people, you're targeting, targeting, you know, a whole set of practices, right, that put people in danger um, uh, that, that are, are not in your categorizations of what sexuality is, right, and so that was something that um, I was also thinking a lot about when I when I was finding these stories and writing about these stories. But certainly I would hope, 
you know, these stories, as much as they are tragedies and, and very difficult kinds of stories to read, they also do open a window of like, look at how much um, risk and, and, and uh, engagement these men were, were, were having, right? How much they were going out and, and picking up men. They were going out and living a sex life um, that, um, that these stories maybe give us a little window into. Yeah. yeah. I do have to say though, the chapter about the sailors and the men coming home, mm. I just kept reimagining Anchors Away, you know, the movie with Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra. <laughs> because when I think of sailors coming home, that's my first like impression is of like that movie with them running around town and stuff like that. And I was just kept thinking like how different this story would have been had it discussed that more right. and really gotten into that. Because I mean, you think about it, it's three men running around, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I feel like had it looked more into that aspect of the men coming home, which obviously it wasn't going to do because you know, Hollywood wasn't ready for that then. But, you know, the concept of that, I think, would have been a very interesting and definitely more serious and not as comical, but I think would have been a definitely more interesting film. Right. Right. Well, also, it's interesting because I, I it, there's an element here, too, which how how um, people might have read that film at the time, too. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So there's there's that element. Right. And so plenty of folks have written about sort of the queer subtext of some Hollywood films that were able to get through even with the censors and that, but, um, but trying to get a sense of so many of these stories in this book are with enlisted men, sailors, soldiers, right? I mean, partly because I think um, they were moving around a lot. They were, they were anonymous for the most part too. So um, that was an element here, but I just think thinking about that, like how pop culture representations are also maybe being read through, through the time, through the, through the other elements that people are engaging with from newspapers to films and how queer subtext might've been threading through some of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it reminds me of the musical On the Town, which Mary also, mm -hmm. maybe, I don't know which came first, Anchors yeah, right. Away or On the Town, but they're like very, cause On the Town is these, uh, those in the Navy who come home and they have this huge number, New York, New York, and they're going to have one night and run around the city, try to find girlfriends to like have a one night stand. But then, you know, instead of that um, sexual element, of course, they like find these long-term girlfriends who they're going to marry. I don't, you know, <laughs> all those things that happen in these heteronormative narratives of fantasy. But um <laughs> You know, I am curious because you keep speaking about the current moment and I don't want that to go unnoticed, James, because I think it's so important because now our language is really around coming out and that identity. I mean, I'm reminded of um, the play Take Me Out, which, you know, has gotten in the news because of a leak with Jesse Williams and full frontal nudity. I'm not going there, but, um, you know, like that play really came out in the early 2000s and there was a lot of these narratives about you know, it still happens. Like, is such and such actor going to, is he gay or is he going to come out or is this musical artist going to come out? And, um, you know, there's still like, it's now about identity and like, are they going to come into the LGBTQ community? Or are they going to stay hidden? And I mean, you can see it on Grindr all the time. Like, well, if you want to go on Grindr, um, I'm on Grindr, <laughs> but, um, you know, like, I guess I'm still surprised. Like there are men who will reach out to me who are married or, you know, they have a wife, they have children and like, they're trying to find these one night stands mm -hmm. and, you know, um, it still happens in some capacity. So like, not that I want you now to become the, you know, spokesperson for psychology around LGBTQ people, but like, why do you think even with all the progress that's been made with lgbtq representation why do you think these like in a way this hidden secret aspect still does exist yeah that's um that's tough i mean i think if, if from a historical lens right that these kinds of categories that we create 
or have created, right, um, uh, have their own cultural um, importance, uh, but they maybe often don't reflect the sex lives of the way men see themselves, right? And so, um, or 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 women in that as well. I, I think you know um, there's still certainly a right a, a an anxiety around sort of naming oneself as queer or in any way, right? And so, um, and and to say, oh, well, that's not me. And I think even for the men that um, populate this book, um, you know, they 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 there's no sense that um, they would see their own um, uh, sexuality as as a part of their identity. It's more of a uh, a practice that they uh, engage in, right? Um, they might have an affair with a woman, or they might have an affair with a man, right? And and it it was simply on that level. But um, you know, I think the categories are useful. But I also think it's interesting that um, we're at a moment, right, where these categories are really getting questioned and maybe um, seen as not so useful in terms of understanding. Um, uh, individual experiences around gender, individual experiences around sexuality. Um, and so it's, it is interesting to think about this moment as maybe another um, rethinking, re uh, shifting in the way I think the 1950s post-war um, uh, homophile movement that emerged to define um, homosexuality as a minority category, which as we know, um, among those activist groups, there was a lot of debate um, around this idea that no, we're not a minority group like African Americans. Where that's not, you know, that this is something we do. It's not who we were born as, right? Um, in terms of race or ethnicity or or class, even, right? And so there's a lot of debate among folks involved in those homophile movements about how to think about sexuality as a minority category and what are the problems there obviously it, it has a has a very powerful political um uh importance and and that really i think motivated that as well right um but it it, it you know the, these categories and again i go back to the 19th century these categories become ever shifting and i you know want to think about um how these categories get used um, politically or culturally, and then how people kind of navigate the categories for their own lives, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ooh. I mean, I it's just, there's like so much that you're saying, James, that really just resonates. I think like, it's so important to think about how we are, because I completely agree. We're in this new transition of understanding sexuality. And I can especially see it with Gen Z and mm. like how now on YouTube or TikTok, you'll see men who, you know, the public would identify as straight, but they don't really claim that identity. And they're like exploring with other men. And it's not just sexual, but it's like romantic. And there's a lot more bromance happening mm -hmm. and this comfortability and fluidity. But at the same time, we have like censorship with LGBTQ literature across the country. So it's like, right, these, it's like these two very drastic mm. movements. And, you know, but the younger generation is going to continue. So in my opinion, it's kind of, maybe that's why there's so much pushback is seeing what you're discussing, which is challenging sexual categories and making them more of an open understanding. I don't know. Is that why you think we're seeing pushback? Um, it's yeah. I mean, I think it's um, difficult. The you know, it makes me think about how again, um, Cold War uh, sensibility. You know, the 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 real uh, focus on homosexuality in the early 50s, right, with mm. uh, red, the, the Lavender Scare, the Red Scare, with communism, um, but also on the local level, right, policing bathrooms, um, the FBI getting involved in some of that activity as well. 
at the same moment, right? So this really kind of these draconian kinds of um, efforts on the local level, national level to weed out homosexuals. They are a threat um, to the nation, to the home front at the same moment that you have the, the, the emerging of a, of a real um, gay rights movement that you know, is putting in place for all of its you know, debates and some of its conservatism at that time, put in place a sensibility that um, grew um, so that by the time Stonewall happened, right, um, there had been um, activities that had been going on um, across the country. Um, so I think, you know, that that's an interesting, you know, I don't know if that's an interesting parallel, but it's a useful parallel to think about the ways in which, um, on one hand, you have this political and um, uh, federal and local responses to homosexuality, and on the other hand, you have this really rich um, political, cultural, um, burgeoning kind of consciousness that's happening you know one of the things i write about in um in in decent advances is how um one magazine which was um coming out of um the mattachine society it, it was an early homophile um uh gay rights um organization in the 50s they would um they would publish crime articles right with commentary about these crime articles and so the this magazine would go to subscribers across the country. And what I say in the book um, is uh, it, it built a kind of consciousness for readers to think, oh, that attack that happened in my town is not just because I live in this kind of horrible homophobic town or the police here are just you know horrible but but look that sort of similar thing has happened in pennsylvania or it's happened in washington state or it's happened in, in wisconsin and so um cr the, those crime stories and the commentary around them from different parts of the country made um and helped i think um facilitate a consciousness around uh um uh, queer citizens as as minorities and as victims within the within the system as such. Yeah, I'm surprised how uplifted I feel during this interview. I'm like, <laughs> I have hope for the future, but and it comes well. But Mary could tell you, right, Mary, that sometimes with your podcast with true crime in academia that you always say you're not loving the crime cases, but there is lessons you're learning. And that's how I feel right mm -hmm. now. You're really acting as a guru, James. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I do think, um, you know, oftentimes people tell me, why are you writing about these gruesome stories, right? And that's gruesome is a word that most reviewers use when they talk about this book, right? Um, and yes, these, you know, that is an element here, but it is, um, and, you know, um, Mary, can speak to this too, right? There is, there is, you know, the crime is a window into something much more interesting than mm -hmm. just um, who did what, what to whom, right? Mm -hmm. um, I used to teach a course at NYU on a history of murder, right? And, and it really was, um, you know, students come for all kinds of reasons um, into that class, but, you know, I really was, you know, the, the, the act itself is one, is really a small part of it. It's how that act then gets told or how it gets adjudicated or how it becomes political or cultural or however, right? That's the interesting parts here, right? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I, now go Mary, I mean. No, uh... I was just gonna say, I agree with all of that a thousand percent. I mean, true crime is a lot more than just what happened and mm -hmm. who did it, mm -hmm. you know? as we see again in this book, you know, you see how the media plays a role in, you know, telling the public about these cases, which I feel like is a comment on the culture surrounding when that murder happened. And, you know, then you can look into all the cultural aspects around that particular crime, you know, and then my favorite part is always the psychology of who did it right. and why they did it what happened to them either in their childhood, which happens a lot, or, you know, as, as they were, as their brains were forming, like what happened to them that made them think this was an acceptable way to 
get through whatever trauma it was that they had experienced. So, right. which again, can also just take on multitudes of different avenues <laughs> to look down. Right. And I think, um, I think there is a, um, a growing um, number of books and researchers who are looking, um, taking crime stories, but looking at um, sort of how the victims come out of out of those um, as well, right? So, a book like um, Tinderbox by um, uh, Robert Fiesler, and so, um, or or, or um, Vice uh, Vice Patrol. I don't know if you know that book by um, Harvard um, uh, law professor Anna Lavosky, and she looks at the ways in which um, vice cases. Um, uh, played out in the courts from the from the mm. 30s to the 60s, right? And it's so really trying to look at some of the dynamics that get played out in in not sort of a generalized narrative, but but more um, uh, how the the victims of these crimes and giving voice to some of those as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think we've approached near the conclusion. Um, so I do want to ask. For a final question, just, I mean, I've been curious about the colors on your book, (laughs) like with indecent advances, like, is there any specific symbolism, like why your title is split up into green, yellow, and red? Well, red is your author name, but, (laughs) but green, yellow, red as a scheme. That, I have never been asked that. I, I, (laughs) I'm not sure, you know, um, with uh, marketing and 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 with the publisher, right? You don't get a lot of input. Although Counterpoint was great, and I was able to give them some sort of like these are things that I would want to avoid because with this kind of book, there are, there are many ways that the type that the the cover could have come out um, with in really kind of sensationalized ways. Mm-hmm. I did not want to to do. Um, and so I think this color scheme um, was what they came up with. Um, we went through a few um, iterations of, of, of a cover, and this was really the, the one that I liked a lot. But I, I don't think there is any, I, from, from my perspective, maybe the designer can speak more <laughs> to the color scheme, but I, I, um, it just, I think, worked well for, for the rest of the layout for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's a very, um... Like it's an intriguing color scheme. So it just makes everything pop with mm. your themes, especially because your title and your name is all in black. So it kind of, mm. to me, does have this newspaper quality. So maybe to right. evoke the newspaper, I'm not sure. I, yeah, well, <laughs> you know. Well, I, can, I can tell you that the UK version is all pink and gray on the cover. So. Interesting. Yeah, oh, they went okay. with a, a different, a different design um uh though at first they had all the title and everything sort of written in blood kind of thing and oh. that, that that we mm. had to not um yeah. not allow so <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah well i but, think yeah. Yeah. you know for the final question just you know any reader who picks up indecent advances mm. you know do you feel like in your title the lessons that you want your readers to learn is in the title, like even just indecent advances. Like, is that the thesis behind your book? Is this coding of desire? Yeah, I think, um, again, the, the title took different, different iterations um, with the publisher in that. Um, I really like indecent advances because as, as you know, as readers who um, get into the book, that was a really dominant um, term for defense, right? In these cases, I had to kill him because he came on to me and that was determined as an indecent advance, right? And I really wanted to, uh, so I think the title does point to the common kind of courtroom defense, but also um, meant to underscore some of the fragility of that defense, right? And, mm-hmm. and how it um, uh, really, you know, doesn't, it doesn't have a, a weight to it uh, when you really look at the case itself. 
Yeah, yeah it's such an interesting term. And I mean, <laughs> we could go on about homosexual <laughs> panic as a legal excuse, but right. we want all of you out there to pick up James Polchin's book, Indecent Advances, um, A Hidden History of True Crime and Prejudice Before Stonewall. Mary and I are huge Broadway musical fans. So we've seen Chicago oh, a right. few times, which right speak about true yep. crime <laughs> and like how they become celebrities at the end. Yes. Uh, a whole, a whole mudslinging media campaign. <laughs> um, maybe Indecent Advances, the musical. That could be an interesting musical. Um, very absolutely. gruesome, but gruesome. very interesting. Yeah. It might be more That's Sweeney Todd, a queer mm. Sweeney Todd, Indecent Advances. I don't know, James. You might want to pitch it eventually. I, I'll, yes, I will think about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but. Thank you so much. This has just been such a wonderful conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. And thank you to our listeners out there. Mm -hmm. And we will be back next week. Mm -hmm. Okay. And wait for 2024 for his next book. Yes. In 2024, we will have James back on to discuss the intense, nuanced 19-year-old case that he couldn't cover in Indecent Advances. Right. Okay. Yes. Well, and happy Pride Month to everyone out there. <laughs> Indeed. Happy okay. Pride. Bye, James. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia. Welcome to our summer season. We made it to summer 2022. I am here with Mary DePippi. Hi, Mary. Hello. I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director. Mary DePippi is our chief contributor. Uh, Nicole Arguello is our marketing assistant. And Kimberly Dallas is our editor. So yay, our interns have positions. Okay. Yay. Um, please, please follow us on social media. We Mary posts so many creative things on her True Crime and Academia. How can they follow True Crime, Mary? At True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok. Okay. And then you can follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room and at Ivory Tower Boiler Room on, ready? Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. Okay. And you can email us. Um, we love to get pitched some episode ideas. So to do that, if you're a publicist out there, maybe you want to get one of your authors on our show, go to ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. Uh, thank you to our audience, to our listeners. We're really excited because we have a lot going on on our Patreon. So Mary, do you want to maybe update everyone on our Patreon account? Yes. Yeah, so aside from the content that we've already been giving you, we will also be having extra special episodes um, specifically for true crime. I will be having an extra bonus episode every month starting in June. <gasps> yeah. You can and the only same get that yes. if you are a subscriber. Yes. So patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. That's it. Just slash ivory tower boiler room. And we already have a lot of bonus material. First, there is a full episode um, with Ursula Klein in our book corner. So you're going to see all of these new special series that are going to pop up in the summer on ivory tower boiler room. Yes, Mary will do it too on true crime and academia. You can listen to a teaser on our podcast, but guess where the whole interview is? On our Patreon. So only a cup, not a cup, but a large cup of iced coffee um, at any of our favorite coffee companies. Um, you only have to pay $5 a month. So please join. We will recognize all of you who join. We'll shout you out during the summer. Um, you can see our video interviews too. And if you want to become an ivory tower, $15 a month, three cups of iced coffee, uh, member, you actually will get our tote bag, our t-shirt. Um, there's more, there's more. Oh, our mug. Cup. I'm drinking from our mug. <laughs> I should, <laughs> for everyone who will see this, I'm actually holding it up. It's a very cool mug. So we are so excited for all of you to join us this summer. I love hearing from all of you. I know Mary loves hearing from all of you. Direct mm -hmm. message us. We read them. And yeah, check out our social media because we post so many clips from the shows. And I started to kind of finesse my way around TikTok. So Mary sees mm -hmm. how excited I get when I know how to add music and all these filters. <laughs> so um, on that note, 
Um, please, please join us for our Instagram events this summer. We have a monthly book club every month. We have our book club and we're going to start having television recaps. Um, we're going to have another open mic poetry event at pen and brush. So stay tuned. I think we might have a Halloween party, but just someone told me that. Okay. A little birdie. Little birdie. Okay. I think we got it all, Mary. So I think so. On that note, let's put a bookmark in this. Yep. Bye, everyone.